This is the Foray Podcast. I am your host, Robbie Stout. Joining us on the show today, we have Brett Height, the co-frontman of the electro-pop duo known as Friendship. They've ranked in the top 100 of dozens of worldwide charts, with 1.3 million monthly listeners on Spotify and nearly 640 million streams of their best-known hit, Capsize. Brett has lived a three-dimensional life. In addition to being a successful musician, he was an elite soccer player at the University of Washington, and since 2018, he has been an extremely dedicated and perhaps obsessed cyclist, riding over 500 hours in a single year. Today's foray will be into the ups and downs of Brett's life as an artist-athlete. So Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you. So where does this podcast find you today? I am in Spokane, Washington. Nice. And um, do you guys have like winter there? I, I don't even, I don't know anything about Spokane. Yeah. And so you're, you're from Spokane, is that right? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I grew up here, spent, yeah, I mean, did college years in Seattle at mm-hmm. UW, and then uh, like 10 years in LA, and then it's, it's kind of a boomerang town. Mm-hmm. A lot of people mm-hmm. just come back or never leave, but. I don't know, like I said, I don't know anything about Spokane, so what, um, what was it like kind of growing up there? Is it, is it um, rural? Is it mountainous? It's it's in between hilly and mountainous. Um, <laughs> the the greater area, I actually checked fact checked this yesterday. The greater Spokane area is half a million, like four mm-hmm. four fifty maybe. Um, and it's it's like in the city, it is quite liberal. You see a lot of liberal things, and then the further you trickle out, you get all the Trump flags and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and would you say Spokane the, is like um, a liberal hub within like a much greater conservative kind of geography out there? Yeah, probably. But even in the city, like it's you, you get a lot of sensation of liberal, but then there's definitely some not so liberal things going on, which I actually really appreciate. It, um, it feels a bit more like a democracy when you have opposing um opinions right in your face mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i don't like it when they're like angry but yeah of course um, of course and yeah. i'm in um charlottesville right now and that sounds pretty similar actually um, yeah a lot yeah. of really extreme conservative people around here um who still want you know the south and then yeah uh ultra liberal as well all in the same kind of place so yeah um, and yeah. so were you into sports early? I mean, did you start playing soccer as like a little kid, you know? Um, yeah, um, for sure. Sport was kind of all I knew growing up mm-hmm. and it wasn't until getting older and looking back in hindsight that I realized some form of like artistic expression within mm-hmm. it all along. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't aware of it while it was happening. Were your were your parents like into art or um, athletics? Uh, yeah, it's funny. <clears throat> they were definitely athletes. They're both of them. My mom was a gymnast and ran track in college, and then my dad played basketball in college, and then went on to play professional volleyball. Mm-hmm. He grew up in Hawaii, so he kind of had that in his genes. And so we were we were very much like my brother and I were growing up always doing multiple sports every season and um it wasn't till 
kind of junior high that I started really caring about soccer and always did like mountainy kind of snow sports and mm-hmm. those things. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll talk about like cycling later, but did you do any um, mountain biking or anything like that as a kid? We lived kind of right at the foothills of, uh, again, I wouldn't call them mountains. Like our biggest mountain here is like, gets up to like 6,000 feet, but it's like only a 3,900 foot climb on a bike. That's pretty sizable. That's good. sizable. I mean. But it's like one of them. Yeah. There's like, <laughs> so I think of it, I guess, in bike terms right. where it's like, well, there's only one of those. Mm-hmm. So we, we're not really a mountain mm-hmm. town. and But there are there's good like usually you're looking at about a thousand feet of elevation gain if you're picking like a trail or anything kind of throughout all these mountains but so we grew up kind of right at the foothills of like a thousand footer kind of and so i was always on bmx bikes or whatever bike was in the garage and kind of chasing those trails without any kind of awareness of it being exercise right, or anything totally. like as you mm-hmm. grow up you're just mm-hmm. having fun and... yeah probably wearing like loose baggy shorts and uh totally, yeah. maybe no helmet um yeah, yeah and so um so you're getting into soccer and uh did you just have like a big you know four years of soccer in high school and really went after it yeah i started like the mainstream thing never really grabbed my attention and so I was like basketball was kind of looking like it was going to be the thing throughout like my elementary years and my dad playing in college and like I had kind of a good coach always on hand. But then once that became like, you know, in school you're playing and that becomes the popular thing that everyone's supporting or going to. And then I was kind of like, ah, this is more interesting over here. Nobody's Mm -hmm. really caring about this so much uh, i i never um, could get into basketball because all the practice was inside and that was oh, my yeah. number one issue and i'm tall i'm six five i i could have been i could have yeah. been a great basketball player most likely yeah um i had yeah. i was like fast twitch but also endurance somewhere in the middle yeah um and i played soccer as a kid and i, I love that but um yeah i had like some hip injury when i was like 12 and i never played again but yeah uh so what did you, yeah, what did you like about soccer that, um, you know, that, that wanted you to get better? Man, it's a good, like, there was, there's a lot of aspects or characteristics to it that probably exist in a lot of those similar sports, the basketballs and, like, hockey or kind of those free-flowing sports where you're trying to put a ball or a puck or a thing in a specific location and uh but it's kind of there is a creative like artistic dynamic to it and and there's like a a sense of chess that can happen kind of within it uh again completely unaware of any of this while it was happening i think at that age you're like oh in soccer we actually like are hitting people pretty hard like there's actually some contact which makes me tough and all these like kind of identities that you're trying to develop as a young man I guess I don't know what it's like to be a young woman but um yeah these identities that you're wanting to fulfill and grow into and I think it checked a few of those boxes for me and then 
I, I started getting um, some validation via like some of the club teams I was on or like as I kind of I started realizing that I was pretty good at it and that's always encouraging mm-hmm. so to keep did you it. were you like really good from the beginning or did it take time for you to kind of build into a great player yeah I always I think just like the way that my family was raised like we didn't ever have cable tv or anything so we were always doing things and always playing so I feel like that alone gave me a leg up on my friends that had video games or had things like I could just kind of pick things up quickly and so yeah there was like a I don't know it's the it's like the I forget which book it is Is it's a tipping point or something like the Malcolm Gladwell book where it talks about hockey yeah 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 I, I, I don't know if this is the analogy is in that book or a different one but um the hockey players where they're all you know born on the early yeah, side no, of that, the year yeah. uh-huh, uh-huh. and it kind of goes into that idea of like well they're you know at five years old when you're starting to play hockey they're you know 20 percent older than mm-hmm. the december birthdays mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. year and so they like they are a little bit better they're more like physically developed mm-hmm. and then they start getting that encouragement. They start getting picked for the teams. They start playing more. Mm-hmm. And so they're getting fed the same. Like, of course, they would outperform their December birthday mm-hmm, totally. peers, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so not as much related to the birthdays, but I think there was a sense of that, of like recognizing I was pretty good at it and mm-hmm. that fueling this fire to continue. And um, just on the thought of creativ- creativity, I think like, I haven't thought a lot about soccer, but I would imagine that, um, you know, when you're playing an opponent, if you're able to think creatively about what you're going to do with the ball, um, and not just try to outrun them or something, you know what I mean? And being mm-hmm. quick on your toes and, and, um, um, I can see how like you could get into kind of a creative mindset with how you play in terms of just trying to be different, try to do different move, do something that they could never yeah. expect you know yeah um, i think yeah you get that in a lot of the top players something that i think like a messy is so good at and not that we need to get <laughs> talking about uh tactical approaches to soccer but um i think he he's really good at choosing moments like and that's all a mental thing like he's got you know a lot of these physical characteristics that are really important but like he you watch him and he's walking 80 percent of the game and then he's sprinting that other 20 percent but he's not like like if he didn't have his credentials and he played like that i think everyone on the team would be pissed at him because he's just walking around the whole time and but i don't know it's that kind of creativity that having a target on your back like Messi causes you to it forces you to think differently about the game than the left back defender that nobody knows who it is. And he's just out there to work hard. And and then before we get into your, your college soccer um, time period, um, were you doing anything with music in, in high school? Uh, yeah, I basically, I, <laughs> the thing that got cut out for me in high school was social experiences like I, I went to maybe like three 
high school dances and I had a girlfriend throughout all of high school and um but I just I like would get down to school go play soccer go home and I'd pick up a guitar and just start making noise and I don't know looking up I think back then there was no YouTube or anything but it was I'd look up it's all about tabs yeah yeah tabs teach me the little three zero two one (laughs) whatever and um and then found some other friends that knew how to play guitar later in high school and so then I'd start picking their brain like what are you doing what's that chord what's and so it really was just like I'd get home from soccer and be just exhausted so then I'd just go into my room and pick up a guitar and start playing that before that like growing up I like in elementary school all that I literally would pull out pots and pans and just play drums and like I'm sure my parents loved it (laughs) (laughs) um that was I'd literally make a drum set out of all their dishes and mm -hmm. (laughs) just start and when you were playing uh the guitar were you ever I mean were you just doing it for the enjoyment or were you ever thinking oh I want to maybe start a band or uh play music yeah it um truly was just enjoyment and I've heard you know the cliche line that all these musicians got into music because they wanted to get girls and that wasn't on my brain then either it was truly just how cool is this that especially coming like I played drums in junior high band in school and then guitar started probably like freshman year really in uh, maybe eighth grade freshman year and of high school and it was kind of this transition from strictly rhythm to melody now like on the guitar now you can play melodies and that was that was kind of a whole new uh, box to open up and so I was just fascinated and intrigued and I loved music I remember when I was really young I had like a little AM FM radio that was my alarm clock and like there was a few songs like every season that I just loved and you know radio they kind of play them in the same rotation every day and so it's like my alarm would go off and then this song would come on and I would just I'd literally grab the alarm clock and just press it against my ear and you know those things are probably as good as an iPhone speaker (laughs) these days and I just wanted to like take in as much of that sound as I could Mm -hmm. Um, Um, did you have uh, siblings I can't remember yeah, one, I had a older brother, two years older than me, and then my parents divorced and then remarried separately, mm-hmm. uh, and I gained four stepbrothers. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. One on one wow. side, three on wow. the other, so. Um, so when you were like, I don't know, elementary school, high school, middle school, um, was there anyone getting you into music? Um, you know what I mean? Like an older brother or somebody like that that would, would, was introducing you to, to new sounds. Yeah, truly no. Um, and so I had a, I think looking back on it, a terrible musical taste. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up quite Christian. Mm-hmm. And so I was listening to a lot of like that, kind of like Christian rock mm-hmm. music, which is not that big of a departure from the creed and nickelbacks of the world i think and (laughs) so i listened to a lot of that shamefully i'll say but especially in this area like it's pop music doesn't really come out of the northwest Mm -hmm. like we're known for 
Nirvana. Um, Nirvana, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pearl Jam, yeah. like all these kind of, I guess Macklemore now is yeah. kind of the oddball. But mm. uh, uh, yeah, it's not, it's more kind of grungy art. Like if you're doing something that is popular, then that's not cool. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so once, like later on in life, when I kind of was deciding to pursue music, I'm really grateful for that, but I don't know how necessary it was that I was surrounded by a bunch of like art kids that Mm -hmm. thought the songs, these cheesy mainstream-esque songs that I was writing were shit. Well, in in comparison, (laughs) like I grew up with three older siblings who introduced me to worlds of awesome music. Like I was in elementary school listening to like uh, Beastie Boys, Tribe Called Quest, you know, uh, yeah. Primus, Metallica. Yeah. Um, the lo- there's a long list, like all like the you know, um, like the hippie era bands. Um, yeah. And I also wanted to be in a band. I played the drums, and you know, so I had all this great musical influence. I wanted to be in a band, and I never started a band. So here, here I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. I don't know if I'd recommend. Uh, I'd recommend it for yeah, fun. Yeah. Don't don't make it your career. <laughs> it's stressful. Um, so um, moving on to uh, uh, your, I guess you had a scholarship at University of Washington to to play soccer. Yeah. Nice. It's weird. I think those were still the days when you ran through the system that you understood was how you were supposed to live your life and. Mm. I think somewhere in college or right after I jumped ship from that protocol. Otherwise I'd probably be married with kids right now. And I was fortunate to have a lot of schools to look at and, um, visited a few and ended up choosing Washington. They had a solid program and they were offering a decent scholarship. And so I went with it. And I think too, I was, I think growing up here in Spokane, you are in the shadow of, a lot of bigger cities mm-hmm. kind of not too distant and it really doesn't help imposter syndrome that is innate to everyone no matter where you grow up mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. but living here being like well i'm not even playing against the best players you know all the time here i'm not you know i can play them on the weekends but like i'm not practicing with mm-hmm. them so mm-hmm. it's it's very much big fish in a small pond you never really know and like spokane we it's crazy how people support Spokane people that actually make it out. Um, except for like, I don't know, there's like a caveat to that. Cause I missed that train. Like I got out and then kind of found my career after having been out of Spokane for a while versus doing that while in Spokane. Mm-hmm. Um, was the, the curve from, you know, high school playing to, to college, was that a pretty steep, uh, learning curve would you say uh I, I wouldn't it was just different like I played on the there was a semi-pro team here in Spokane called the shadow um that now is just like a youth system here but um so I played on that from my freshman year in high school like so I had four years of playing with these d1 players before I got into college um so it wasn't so steep like I was 
Washington was a good program, so it was a little different than playing against all the Gonzaga guys mm-hmm. here. And but it really was just faster and more physical. Like mm-hmm. I actually kind of hate the college soccer game. It's just like a bunch of athletes running around kicking each other. Yep. And <laughs> so that took some getting used mm-hmm. to. And I wouldn't say that I ever found my. I think looking back on it, I chose wrong in choosing Washington, like the, the style of play and the coaches, we just never saw eye to eye. I was always fighting with them on how I should do my job. And, um, yeah, so it it definitely took the wind out of the sails a bit. Um, so it's tough. These, these college programs, they like, they know they have demand for like athletes wanting to get in. And so they can just be like, well, you can either fit the mold or get out of here, you know? Yeah. And I, I remember having that exact conversation of like, did you not know who you recruited? Like, mm-hmm. you've watched me play. Like, you know how I play. Mm-hmm. And how come I'm not allowed to play the way that I play now that I'm here mm-hmm. wearing your clothes? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, at that age too, it's like you every decision is your whole world Mm -hmm. like it's like it your identity is wrapped up in it and um so to just like i don't know it it caused me to have a lot of respect and recognize the courage of like college athletes that can transfer mid you know career i guess mid college career So you looked around for some professional teams after college or maybe during college. Um, and then at some point you decided, um, you know, maybe this isn't for me anymore and um, I want to do music. Um, what was that uh, decision-making decision process like? Yeah. I mean, so truly, because I, I ended up getting kicked off the team at UW because it really came down to the coaches and I just like hating each other and nice way to go (laughs) me going into my yeah me going into my senior year being like screw this Mm -hmm. um and and I'm just gonna play the way that I want to play and I'm gonna make winning the most important thing to me because that's when it's fun for me Mm -hmm. and at least on a at a level like that it's fun to really care about what you're doing and and to expect and and want a result and that that didn't go over well I think at that point after three years of (laughs) just kind of fighting and being at odds with each other and so they kicked me off the team and so I just became like a an absolute like snowboard bum nice the rest of like that winter and was like yeah just truly going up as much as I could and I was a complete park rat, just like had a couple of skier friends and we would just do laps and laps and laps all the time through the park and work on different tricks and whatever. And, um, and then some of my, I guess, former teammates were like, Hey, we're doing like some kind of spring, just like scrimmage, just playing. Um, you should come out and just train with us. Um, and at that point it was just for fun. So I was like, yeah, sweet. So I did. And it had like half of the Sounders players and, uh, and they're like, Oh, what are you doing next week? Like we're come down and train with us. Like we're going to have another one of these. And, um, 
it was down at their complex and so I went down and I was like 10 minutes late and I show up and everybody's like lined up and it looks so like formal for being a little like just get together and Mm -hmm. then like I'm like there's some guy standing up talking to them all and stuff and um and it was the coach and he's like this is probably a more polite way of saying it but who are you um and I was like I'm Brett and fortunately the captain of the team invited me to come out and Mm -hmm. so I was like he told me to come and he's like okay well this is like preseason you better be here on time and I was like oh (laughs) I didn't know (laughs) so that kind of like kicked off my uh pursuit of the professional soccer and um and that was like I mean it had no expectation to pursue professional soccer after getting kicked off my college team Mm -hmm. and then I was just I kept showing up to those Sounders trainings and it was so fun like it was not just a bunch of athletes going around kicking each other like these were some really smart players that um and it was so fast and just it was it was the most fun I'd had playing soccer in at least four years and um so I just kept showing up and uh never eventually like never signed but I was there for like six months kind of training and playing some like um exhibition games and stuff with them but uh so the following season I had some calls uh one of them was from a team in Ohio and he was like we have a place for you and it's like there was no money in it still especially for someone like me who was not some star out there like not so I was like okay I can go to Ohio not exactly a destination on my radar (laughs) uh, (laughs) for the sake of life Mm -hmm. but um I can go there play in this league and whatever make a little money and keep trying to find my way to the top or I can pivot. Um, in college, I had a, I blew out my knee, and that's kind of when I really dove into music. It was mm-hmm. the first time I had all that time on my hands, mm-hmm. like not playing soccer. So um, that kind of developed this love and planted this seed of like, well, what would it be like to actually play music? And so at that point, I was really thinking heavily on that. And so when that call came in to make terrible money continually getting my body kind of just wrecked day in day out uh or try something new that might have a longer uh lifespan to it Mm -hmm. i I went for the the latter um and it it really wasn't too difficult for me it was like i don't know i i'd kind of allowed myself to detach from the identity aspect of it um at that point I think from the injury to getting kicked off the team I was like okay I'm more than this thing I don't need this to Mm -hmm. like define me and uh so yeah I jumped ship from that pursuit and started down the long arduous uh pursuit of music and that seems like a, a pretty big uh leap um to take with a fairly minimal 
kind of background? I mean, you had a long background with playing music on your own, but to go from that to I'm going to pursue this as a potential career, possibly, um, you know, that's a that's a pretty big leap to take from soccer, which you were actually very good at, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's I heard this quote um, in regards to formal training, of which I had none for music and had loads for soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they say that the only thing formal training gives you is confidence in what you're doing. And so... I guess to add to that, I had zero confidence in what I was doing with music. Um, I just knew I really enjoyed it mm-hmm. and saw the idea of me moving to LA and like getting going with it as really just like, I'm, I want to find out what I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and I did and ended up having to turn around real quick and which I don't know at all. It all worked out. It was because of a, a stint with meningitis that I ended up having to move home. But <laughs> it was also a good time for me to be like, "All right, I'm terrible at this music mm-hmm. thing. I need to work on mm-hmm. this." So you went to LA. You were like, "I'm going to do music," and then you you kind of sucked, and then you got meningitis, mm-hmm. and you're like, "I'm yeah. going home. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. mommy and daddy." <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly. Um, I was yeah. Because I, I got sick and I was like down there and I was living on my buddy's couch for six months. So it was like not glamorous mm-hmm. and and it's not like he had a nice couch. Um, he was nice for letting me sleep on his couch, but his couch was not nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, so I got this thing where I like couldn't stand up for more than like a minute and a half. And I was like, there's something going on. Like I don't... I this is weird. So I went and got it checked and it was right during swine flu. So I went to ER and I was like, I don't know. I'm like dizzy and can't really stand up for more than a minute and a half. And they're like, okay, but it's not swine flu. And I was like, I don't think so. And so, you know, back of the line for you. And eventually they got me in a couple hours later. They're like, well, these are symptoms of meningitis. We should do a spinal tap just in case. So gave me a spinal tap. And then it was like all hands on deck, like everyone in full like hazmat suits wow. and stuff coming in and being like, like you're, you're in bad shape. We're going to put you in like ICU and, or I don't know, this whole kind of sectioned off ward. Um, so yeah, I did that. And then, yeah, my mom flew down truly like mom flew down and drove me home and that's where I stayed for a couple of years, actually. And, and so when you were kinda... you were home in, in, um, in Spokane with your, with your parents um, and recovering from meningitis, which I don't I don't yeah. know anyone who's ever had meningitis, so I know. first, <laughs> it's wild. Um, were you like still stoked on music? Still wanted to just develop your skills and style? Um, you know? Yeah, very very much Mm -hmm. um it's so interesting knowing what i know now and looking at my approach then i I mean all i had was like an athlete approach to anything i did Mm -hmm. because that's all i knew and so it was well just put in the time just do the work Mm -hmm. just which is good i'm glad that exists within me but 
man, I could have cut some years off of that pursuit. I think if I knew some of the things I know now and, mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah, it was, it was, I truly like set up kind of a schedule of, <clears throat> all right, I'm going to go to the coffee. We didn't have internet at home. We, we lived off grid pretty Wow, my upbringing. that's wild. And especially, this and, is uh, what year? What year is this? Like twenty? Two thousand nine. Yeah, wow, ten maybe. Two, I mean, I, I had yeah. internet in the nineties. That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Yeah, cheap living. Um, and so, yeah, I, I literally would set it up where I would drive to the coffee shop and send out emails, send out like just try and hustle my like way up into some kind of musical food chain um and then i would go home and like sit at a piano or i got a laptop and kind of was learning logic like production and i literally went through the whole manual like front to back like page one and it works i learned a lot about that yeah totally i did that with uh photoshop when i was like in 1998 or 99 um i was like a little kid middle school and my mom got photoshop on our computer and i just took out the manual and started reading it and trying stuff and i still remember stuff that i learned then that i still use today it's pretty wild yeah same it's it's, i was like well no one's gonna teach me this so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'll just learn it from the book nice music by the book (laughs) yeah (laughs) um and so you 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 developed your skills this was like your uh you know your your warrior training you know your remote warrior training (laughs) sharpening the blade yeah Yeah. and you decide to go back to la is that right yeah uh i had a this this one i don't like to go public but we're or Brett tells all okay, here. Let's do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I had a brief stint on The Voice, oh. uh, which okay. it's it's so brief <laughs> that it can easily go untalked about. Yeah. Um, but that was a very like transformational kind of moment. Um, they reached out, like their casting reached out to me, and was, was like, "Hey, we." heard your stuff like we'd love for you to audition and i was like nope not for me like this is not not cool how i want this to go (laughs) yeah there's nothing sweet about this yeah and and this is like season three of the voice so i even understood back then this was not cool and and i was like not for me um and i I was like here's like a handful of my friends that are the best singers i know you'll love them Mm -hmm. and sent them they went and auditioned None of them got past the first round, um, and then I was like, "Oh, I, actually, I'll I'll be in L.A. when you're having your L.A. like casting or whatever." So I'll just come to that, and so I did. Didn't prepare anything; just played like some covers that I knew, and did not care about it at all. Uh, and then I made it through, and I was like, "This is like, flawed." <laughs> like, is this? Am I the joke guy now? Because <laughs> like, I know my friends are better singers than me. Mm-hmm. Am I gonna be the next William Hung of The Voice or like some? Um, and so I don't know. I just kept kind of doing that, like showing up to the next round of auditions and being like, "Ah, oh, I don't care about this." And then. Eventually, that was with the executive producers and Carson Daly and all these people. And 
same thing. They're like, here, we'd love it if you could learn these two songs and play them for us. And I was like, don't really feel like it. Here's two that I've already know and played them for them and made it on to the show. Um, wow. Yeah. And what they don't tell you, though, is that there's like a month to two. It's like a two month process, but you're in like they have you in a hotel for like three weeks before you even are at the blind auditions. And then, but so what that did for me that was really good, I think was it forced me to live with and be surrounded by the most insanely talented singers. And everybody's just like singing their asses off 24 seven and making me feel very insignificant. Um, and like, I have no chance on this show, Mm -hmm. but and so I ended up getting very much into my head uh, by the time it went to TV and I was on stage for a blind audition. And needless to say, it's probably one of the worst public performances or at least semi-public performances I've ever given. Um, so no one was able to turn their chairs around, which is, I think, one of the best situations to happen to me. It was awful. Like, I learned everything I don't want to do um, in music or how I want it to go. Mm -hmm. I learned all the ways that I would burn out so quickly. Um, And so did that air on TV, the the blind audition? It did. And they thankfully had the decency to montage me. So it was just a 15 second clip that they showed me. Um, And even that 15 second clip, it sounds like somebody who's never sang before. Yeah, I mean, um, I think, but any any experience like that is as horrible and just awkward as it must have been at the time. I think is is useful at some point, you know, like. Um, oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, I I feel like I've I've got one that I've been through like that, but not nearly as yeah. No, it wasn't the voice, but it's just really <laughs> embarrassing stuff. You're like, God, I can't believe I did that, and how lame was that? But then you learn. You're like, okay, well now I know that's not for me. Now I know how better to kind of like make decisions about future opportunities. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that like, I guess the whole reason I even brought it up was I met some guys that were on the show. They had a band, they were living together in Hollywood mm-hmm. in like a studio apartment It's like a 300 square foot studio apartment. There was two of them and they're like, you can come move in with us. Mm-hmm. And so I just did like that was an opportunity to move to LA again and it's paying $300 a month in the center of Hollywood in the worst little studio apartment, no parking, nothing. It was, it was awful, but it got me there, um, for round two. And I, I got a job working at Lululemon, uh, almost as cool as the voice. (laughs) Almost. Yeah. This was definitely a high time for me. Yeah, like, I'm going to go be on The Voice. I'm going to work at Lululemon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Satisfy all my dreams. Yeah. Um, but it is so interesting. It is those, like, moments that give you confidence because just life is filled with ups and downs. And, and it's... I look back and see how important those years were mm-hmm. for me or that year really it was definitely one of the hardest years of my life and right after I moved to LA I ended up 
breaking like my femur in a really weird spot where I ended up needing a bone transplant in my knee, the same knee. And so all these, like there's a lot of things, um, that were testing how much I cared about being a musician and Mm -hmm. doing it that way. And, um, yeah, my stubbornness won out, I guess, Mm kind of paid out, Mm -hmm. paid off there. Um, and, so to the, the Lululemon point, um, I'm now realize, I mean, I, I obviously I know this, but, um, so I went, met my, like my friend's group in college by working at a Jimmy John's. Oh uh, yeah. But we, uh-huh. we weren't just, you know, we, we did make some sandwiches, but we were all the bike messenger Jimmy John's guys. So oh, cool. we'd load up our bags of sandwiches. We'd ride all, all around town and deliver sandwiches and. Yeah. We were riding till 4 a.m. That's when we would close. And um, so that's where, where I met some of my best friends that I'm still friends with today, inclu- including yeah. um, Sean Foreman from uh, 303, the singer. Oh, wow. So yeah. he was yeah. a Jimmy John's guy. We both were there, you know, <laughs> selling sandwiches. <laughs> nice. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing where you meet people when you're young. You know, it could be, totally. could be a Lululemon, could be a Jimmy John's. <laughs> yeah uh, jimmy lemons yeah um and so you're working at lululemon and that's where you meet your eventual um friendship uh co-founder uh james yeah. sunderland is that right yeah yeah, yeah. um from colorado oh, okay. little 303 tie mm-hmm. um but yeah uh yeah and we, we he was like in a dj duo thing that he was miserable in at the time mm-hmm. and we we were like it was such a weird intersection in our lives like we weren't really stoked on starting something together but we were just happy to like at least for me i was so happy to just have a job and like mm-hmm. i don't know kind of find a little bit of normalcy and whatever in my life and you know as terrible of pay it was it was still a paycheck that i could count on and knew roughly Mm -hmm. how much i was making and stuff and uh but all the girls that worked there we were like they're like oh you guys both play music you need to make music together and we're like no no we're just you know homies Mm -hmm. it's not like that and uh and then that causes us to drink so much alcohol um just hanging out all the time like having a great time uh and then it, it was not sustainable i mean it lasted for like a month and we were just like this is this is not us like <laughs> like woke up hungover one morning we're like we we should dial this back and try something else so mm-hmm. we and we did try um writing a song and it was I don't know. I mean, it, it did actually end up getting released, but it, um, I don't know. It just, we noticed there was a lot better reaction from our friend groups and kind of the people around. You started seeing reactions that, I don't know, people didn't give to our stuff before that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I always say, like, the worst thing you can do to an aspiring artist is give them a compliment and, it's going to probably allow them to continue because it's a form of validation. And, um, 
so we got enough of those compliments to make us think we might have been on to something. So we started taking some meetings and eventually signed a publishing deal, had to quit. Actually, we probably didn't have to quit, but <laughs> we were so happy to quit Lululemon and do it full time. And that was back in 2014. And so this um, publishing deal was, um, was this before Columbia? Yeah. Okay. All right. <clears throat> because we still didn't have any like, we didn't know if we wanted to be artists or just songwriter producers and just write for other people, mm-hmm. which is why a publishing deal was more interesting to us than like a record deal. Mm-hmm. Um, don't need to get into this, but the economics of a publishing deal are also typically far better than the economics of a record deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we ended up signing, um, this deal with prescription songs and um we were uh, the girl who signed us uh was this girl katie fagan and she truly is is still to this day our mother like she is responsible for so much um of our career and anything we've done um she i mean as a publisher your job is to kind of collect royalties and uh, essentially, you know, within the contract, it's like you're collecting royalties, maybe pitching for some sync opportunities. And uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, And she was booking shows for us. She was, you know, connecting us with anyone and everyone she knew in the industry getting us in rooms with artists that were much bigger than us and doing so much to just help. And uh, so, yeah, I, I definitely credit her with a lot of um, us, I don't know, getting anywhere in this world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing that she kind of showed up in your life when she did and um helped make all those connections and um, get you go, get your career, you know, moving forward and in, in like a totally yeah in a good direction. Um, and so, did you have the the band name at that point? Yeah, by the time we had signed the deal, we we were calling ourselves Friendship, and mm-hmm. man, we wish we didn't at this point. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, this isn't really a name that ages well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one this one works maybe in your twenties. It's cute, and then. And um, then you grow up. But yeah, you're like, well, that's stupid. Well, you're not the only ones. Uh, uh, I'm not going to name names, but I, I mean, it just, you, you change, yeah, you change as a person, but you create this brand, right? Yeah. Um, and I think like, I'm glad that at least for me with, with Ritual Chocolate, um, we went oh, yeah. with Ritual. Um, yeah. Because that ended up being ambiguous enough to kind of, um, kind of grow with us as a, as a company. Yeah. Um, we did have a name before that. Um, I'm not even going to say what it was, but, um, (laughs) that would have been pretty terrible. Like we actually did register the business under that other, other name and we were operating, um, shortly after as ritual, but still under that business name, which was kind of funny. But, um, yeah. Yeah. We, I've heard Chris Martin talk about Coldplay <clears throat> as a stupid name. <laughs> and I've heard Dave Grohl talk about Foo Fighters and how stupid yeah, that is. And, yeah. Um, 
But the thing that's nice about Coldplay, this is like not to, you know, flare up a huge discussion on their music, mm-hmm. but uh, it's not a thing, which is a really good quality to have in a band name, I think. Mm-hmm. Like Coldplay is that is Coldplay. Like mm-hmm. co- the thing of Coldplay is a band. Right. There's no other usage for it and friendship. Well, that was just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't think it's as, you. You're probably the harshest critic. I mean, by far. Mm. Uh, like, I don't think people are sitting around thinking, oh, it's a dumb name. You know? Um, yeah, we are. You guys, you guys are. But that's <laughs> <Yeah>. your job. <laughs> Which is great because it seems like we don't agree on much these days. Uh-huh. As you know, business partners is just is tough after time. Mm-hmm. But I would imagine. I don't know. That's. <laughs> presumptuous but <laughs> um yeah and so okay so you guys um you've got friendship going uh publishing deal and um how did your capsize song come about man it so we were writing a lot we kind of we became good friends with this girl emily warren mm-hmm. and she was getting a few little cuts here and there. She had like a chain smoker song. It was um like that Don't Let Me Down by the Chain Smokers. She had just kinda written and it was just coming out and, and she wrote some songs for Jesse J and um so she was getting some traction in the songwriting side of things. Um but she was young and just so easy to work with and just we became really close friends so we were working a lot together, just writing songs. Um, we wrote Capsize literally on the day of graduation for her from NYU and she literally showed up to the session in a cap and gown and I don't know yeah it was just kind of a the kind of for lack of a better term vibe or kind of energy was that came really quick like we kind of understood the tone of what we were doing mm-hmm. Um, but like dialing it in and figuring out how to communicate that tone took a really long time, hundreds of rewrites probably, uh, ended up pretty close to the original thing, not to sound cliche and like, oh yeah, we tried a million other ways and it ended up back like at the beginning, but that is what happened for that one. And and we were still kind of didn't know what to do with it. We really liked it, and it had a lot of good reactions when we played it in meetings. Um, we weren't really putting out songs as a band yet. Uh, and then, I mean, like, Rihanna had it for a while. She supposedly was holding it to cut it, and which is kind of an industry cliche as well, that Rihanna's, she just is known for sitting on songs and... Mm-hmm never actually cutting them and um or i suppose her team is responsible for that but um yeah there's like it went through a handful of different camps and artists that were saying they were going to cut it and never did and eventually james and i we were just at odds and like could not agree on anything and we were like well shit we have like five songs that aren't getting picked up anywhere but they're good songs and they're done so we might as well put them out and then we'll just be done Mm -hmm. after that Mm -hmm. and 
So we kind of set up this like every three or four weeks, like release one of these songs. And it was literally kind of our, not that anyone even cared at the time, but that was kind of for us, that was like our trajectory to the end. Mm -hmm. And so we put out one song um, and it was okay. And then the very next one was Capsize and it just like out of nowhere took off on Spotify and yeah, it was, it's, it was a much more accessible time at Spotify. So, you know, the head of pop playlisting at the time, this guy, Mike Begain was very much like talking to us. And again, we were nobodies, but he found the song on like hype machine or something back then. Mm-hmm. So he put it on new music Friday. Then from new music Friday, he emailed us the next week and was like, your song outperformed, you know, all these other songs based on it's like retention score and how people were listening to it and saving it or whatever. Um, supposedly, it like I think it came out the same week as One Dance by Drake mm-hmm. and didn't get nearly the amount of streams, but it outperformed it in terms of like its retention scores and how people were reacting to it. And so that just kept he put it on their biggest playlist and all the other playlists and at the time we didn't even understand what that meant or how mm-hmm. big of a deal that was and we were just freaking out that it had more than a thousand streams and so at, at this point um how many years has it been since um you departed you know your soccer career to um, pursue music and then um, for this song to come out and start to get traction yeah, I guess like 2009, I essentially was done, hung up the cleats, as it were. Uh, and then 2016 was when this song came out. So seven seven years. Okay. Wow, that's a um, long time. And yeah. Um, and so after seven years of, of feeling like you, know, you were probably learning a lot, your, your music was probably getting better, but you're not really making a lot of traction at least in terms of becoming some well-known band to suddenly this one song just going totally viral um like what was that like <laughs> were you just confu- dumbfounded yeah. <laughs> totally yeah. yeah like you you start to develop like i'd put out songs as a solo artist and you know at that point probably put out 20 30 songs or something <clears throat> we'd put out a couple as friendship and so you, you develop this understanding or this expectation that nothing's going to happen, but it's still exciting just to put your thing out there. Um, and so when something did happen, you're like, Oh, well, we weren't, we weren't ready for this. Yeah. <laughs> like we're I, should get, I, I should get a haircut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Truly. Like, uh, uh and I was I was broke for all my life, um, and like at that point I was twenty thousand dollars in credit card debt, and so now like I was doing you know numbers and counting, like based on like what Spotify claims to pay per song, which definitely is not accurate, but even I would do like a reduced rate just to play it safe, like. Um, it, 
you know, I was like, wow, we're, we're making like some legit money. And it truly in the first like two months, I think we did somewhere in the quarter million territory or something. And after having made maybe like 10 grand in music wow. or something before that, you know, yeah. it's like, um, a huge change. And the day that Capsize came out, we signed up with a manager all of a sudden we had everyone wanting to get a piece of the pie and that felt great. But in hindsight, you're like, well, that feels terrible. Like, cause they're, none of them are with us really. Like there's nobody that came on after capsize is still with mm-hmm. us and mm-hmm. on our team. Um, anyone who came on before is still with mm-hmm. us. That's wild. Um, yeah. And I actually haven't connected those dots till right now. So that, <laughs> And so, um, so you decide to sign with, uh, Columbia records. Is that right? Yeah. And, um, yeah, that signing, like, did it, did they work with you on a new album? Did, you know, um, did it further your career, you know, (laughs) (laughs) man. So I didn't want to sign because I saw how much money was coming in. I just felt like we could do a lot on our own. But our manager, our lawyer, everybody at the time was saying, you need to sign this needs like a, even Spotify was suggesting it. They're like, this needs to go to radio. This, and everyone was recommending it. Um, I still didn't like it. Um, and I didn't even understand the economics of major labels. And that was a really brutal lesson. Um, but yeah, so this tone that you're getting from me is a hundred percent because I love talking about this stuff and it's gotten me in trouble. Mm -hmm. Like two years ago, New York times reached out to us and they were like, Hey, we heard that you love talking about record deals and your experience with Columbia records. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I did, and I shared everything. I gave him numbers. Like, you know, I was like, yeah, look, this is how much the song was making. This is how much went into our pockets. And, um, like three days after that interview, I got a call from our lawyer and it was like, you know, again, a a version of this that was a little more aggressive was like, what did you just do? What did you just say to this reporter? And, um, like I told him what happened and, uh, He's like, yeah, you have an NDA. Like, you're getting threatened to be sued by Columbia right now. And so he's like, you either need to call that reporter up and recant your statements, or this is going to be bad. And so we ended up calling the reporter and we're like, hey, I get it. Like, this sucks. Like, we told you what we told you. Technically, you can write whatever you want, but it's a bad situation for us if you print it. And so we ended up, I was like, can I at least try and tell you the story without the numbers? And, um, so the way that I gave my point, which is very true. Um, this is a true story that happened. Um, we, it was like a year after the song came out and it was 
platinum kind of all over the world as a platinum record like triple platinum i think in australia which is not difficult i think <laughs> this podcast might go triple platinum in australia but um <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I was like, we've got this massive record uh, by a lot of definitions, a hit, and I need a new car. And I really wanted like a BMW X5, like SUV at the time. And instead, I ended up with a CRV, uh, a Honda CRV on lease. Nice. <laughs> I was like, let this tell the story of what it's like to be a major label artist with a hit record. Yeah. And so um, the relationship with Columbia is not exactly um, peachy. Uh, yeah. And so at some point, you guys decide to part ways. Um, yeah. was, that a, was that a painful decision? Was that tough or easy easy you're like let's <laughs> get out okay one of the easiest decisions truly actually wow. in music that i've made but mm-hmm. um and to be fair the other side of the coin it's just a dark place like those I, i've not seen many major labels where employees are happy and i always heard of this like southwest airlines model where the ceo treats the board really well and board treats you know just below them really well and and it's this trickle down effect to where the lowest level employees are treating customers really well because um and so that's the result is the company has great customer service because it comes from the top down and and i look at things like united airlines or something or and i'm like oh nobody's happy here and that is directly felt by me the customer and um and that's a similar thing that happens i think with major labels it's just you can tell how like people it's a roller coaster the jobs like it's a everybody's like coming and going it's like your person who loves your band and like fights for you is gone Mm -hmm. in the month like because for whatever reason but and so it's so hard to like I really admire like I mean John Mayer is on Columbia Records and I'd always look at him and be like man how has he evolved throughout all of these years and maintained like good rapport and he's even like you've seen the times when he's struggled with it or and he's somehow like I, I really respect the way that he's evolved with the times like I mean he came up when people were still buying CDs and mm-hmm. um, kind of made it through the Napster and, you know, LimeWire days and then has made it into streaming and, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> his revenue is coming from live shows mm-hmm. more than anything, mm-hmm. obviously, but. Uh, it's just so it's ironic just... that um, here's music, like music is supposed to be fun and awesome and make people feel good yet. Yeah, the people at the record companies, they may or may not be happy working that job. Like, um, you know, maybe there's bad vibes or whatever. And it's just like, that's, it just seems so backwards to me that that could be the atmosphere potentially. Yeah. Um, and that's what like, 
It's crazy. You have to remind yourself that these people probably got into music because they loved it mm-hmm. at one point. Mm-hmm. Because they do not communicate that whatsoever, um, real time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's it, that was a a very eye opening experience, but one that was very easy to move on from. Uh, and it's, I think in our career so much, like, I mean, and in life too, like your decisions are often a reaction to like recent events or it's, it's Mm -hmm. a way to avoid, I don't know. We avoid pain like that. And Columbia was a painful experience. And Mm -hmm. so we went opposite. We went like, what's the coolest indie label we can find? Mm -hmm. And, um, this record label out of the UK, they're called Ninja Tune. Uh, and then they have like kind of a imprint called counter records that we signed to. Mm-hmm. And I still loved that experience. Our, our, we put out an album with them, uh, and it didn't do well, like by numbers and that kind of thing, but they got it. Like they were an artist label. Like they were just, you could tell from the top down they were fans of music mm-hmm. and they just loved music and they didn't love you know they listened to stuff that i listened to and mm-hmm. it had like stuff on their label that um i'm a big fan of from like little dragon to like young fathers and like i don't know all these like cool kind of electronic things and mm-hmm. um and they took a chance on us because they're like, you're kind of the coolest version of a mainstream thing that we would want to like put our hands on. So let's try it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, they were like, well, turns out we don't know what to do with mainstream music. And, um, so that didn't really work well, but they're still like, I, I still speak highly about them and our experience there. It was very artist friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you finally are you know you're done with columbia you've got a kind of record label uh, relationship that you feel like you could be creative and put out the music you want to put out mm. and then um at some point you pick up a really bad habit of uh riding your bike <laughs> yes yes and this was definitely in the midst of so um uh just checking out your strava it looked like 2018 but were you starting to get kind of into it before that um yeah i mean it, like i moved down to la bought a fixie bike for like 300 bucks nice. that i still have actually yep. it's like an old schwinn i don't know sprint or nice, something nice um and yeah i loved getting around that way mm-hmm. um fixie wasn't great for like the landscape of la because it's quite spread out and mm-hmm. pretty hilly at times and um, maybe I could do better with it now, but back then I definitely wasn't strong enough to do that, nor did I have any awareness of like bike fit or anything. So I was just, had a terrible fit. That, um, but then it was really, it was one of the first big purchases I made after signing the Columbia deal. Was it Columbia? I don't know. After some paycheck that came in, it was one of the first big purchases of like. Yeah, like I can't get my BMW. Yeah, I can't get my BMW, but I'm gonna get a. I'm gonna get a bike. (laughs) I'm gonna get a bike, which 
going to end up being more expensive in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's pretty awesome. I mean, no matter how you get into it. Um, I mean, I didn't road bike growing up, but I always mountain biked. And I yeah. actually got into road biking in Boulder through a fixed gear as well. Oh, nice. And so did like all my friends at the time. It was just like, we all went straight from, uh, you know, zero to fixed gear, which yeah. is kind of wild. Maybe we were all just trying to be cool or whatever, but yeah. I was, I went full fixie culture for a while. I just yeah. I loved it. I love the simplicity of it. Um, yeah. you know, no breaks or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually have a, a, a break on mine now and I still have, uh, my like custom frame I had made back in 2005. Oh, sick. Um, my first few fixed gear frames ended up um, completely like breaking on me through. Oh, uh, oh. I got hit by two cars back in the day. Oh. Uh, and I was, I was fine. I mean, I just, you know, brushed it yeah. off. <laughs> it's happening so much. I yeah. just saw, like, yeah, so many people are getting hit. Yeah, right man. Now. It's, it's brutal. Um, but uh, so you finally get a, a geared bike. And uh, what, what, which bike was that? Oddly enough, it was a, wow, I haven't even connected these dots, but it was a Cannondale Super 6 Evo. Oh, nice. Um, which is what I also have now <laughs> in a much fancier version mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was like a 105 group set and mm-hmm. didn't know what any of it meant at the time. Just was like, that thing's really light. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get that. And like same thing like didn't have a good fit on it like 25 miles would like top me out i just felt so sore and achy and uh so yeah yeah actually i think i got that bike yeah got that bike after the record deal could only go like 25 miles on it so didn't really get into it and then like two years later or something or a year later i was like I'm going to get a bike fit and mm. try and care about mm. this. And so why, why were you, um, even interested? Like, like why get the geared bike? Um, why start riding? What was the draw there initially? Do you remember? Man, that is a good question. I know that I'd become so out of shape. Uh, I'd become like such a studio, like rat blob and just, yeah. Like sitting in, probably this chair and mm-hmm. just like withering away. And so I was kind of annoyed by that. It I'd gotten to the point where running would just break me. Like if I tried to go, I could go two miles and then something would go wrong. And mm-hmm. so I avoided that instead of like trying to figure that out. Um, and then yeah i don't know it just it kind of i liked the idea of it um i don't really know what like like i got into climbing very cliche after like free solo or or no it was, there was like a there was one before free uh, cl- solo. cliffhanger like, with uh, sylvester Stallone. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um no it was like a tommy caldwell thing like the don wall or some mm-hmm. documentary or something mm-hmm. but still very cliche like saw a documentary and was like oh i should do that mm-hmm. and, um and then cycling i'm not sure maybe it was like a tour de france happened and i like tuned into one of the stages and 
growing up my dad had it on all the time and so that could have been like the spark that caused me to go get into it but from that bike fit as a classic you know bike fitter he's like oh you need a new bike and so, <laughs> um, so I ended up getting the Cervelo uh, S3 mm-hmm. and and I, I like that had DI2 on it and like I was like, oh, this is a this disc brakes. I was like, this is a whole different machine. Like, this mm-hmm. is amazing. And so, it's pretty on brand for me to get completely addicted to something right out the gates. And mm-hmm. um, not everything sticks, but I'm glad cycling did. Yeah. Um, just to convey that addiction um, to the listeners. Um, <laughs> So I checked out your Strava. Um, the first ride that I saw you log on there was in November of 2018. And you were immediately pretty consistent um, doing like 10 hours to 18 hours a week, which that's a huge amount, yeah. honestly. Yeah, straight out the gates. And then 2019, like, you know, right out, like shortly after, you know, getting your Strava going, <laughs> you did yeah. 526 hours that's that's like that's like if you were to ride every single day doing like an hour and a half a day or more oh wow um yeah. i think the most i've ever logged on strava is like maybe 450 hours uh that's, that's... gnarly man like yeah. <laughs> not many people are doing 500 hours plus uh unless they do yeah I do recall a lot of Strava comments of like, get a job or like, <laughs> <laughs> my friends just be like, well, how do you have time in your day to yeah. knock out five hours a day? I mean, like when you ramped up your, your mileage like that pretty fast, mm-hmm. like, did it change like you in any way? Like, did, did you kind of change as a person at the same time? You know? Yeah. I mean you get pretty used to discomfort and mm-hmm. like hurting um physically anyways and i remember like like looking back on it it was such a severe case of overtraining because it wasn't just like 500 and whatever hours it was like try and like pr every climb and like every ride <laughs> doing it yeah yeah zone 2 was just like a, a gateway to the zones I was going to live in mm-hmm. during every ride. And you're just like zone three, every ride. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't eat enough. Um, yeah. Finish, truly, finish like, every ride bonked. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Crawling up the stairs to yeah. our place. Um, yeah. I, I did everything wrong in that regard, but it, yeah, I always have these arguments now. I'm, I'm such an advocate of zone two which I don't know. Cause I think my objectives have changed a little bit um, from that year where I was just trying to be able to hang on to the fast guy's wheels. Um, like kind of all around LA mm-hmm. and now it's like, okay, cool. I know that I can hang on to wheels. Um, why am I doing this? And the why has kind of shifted to, I want to live like a vital life. Like a, I want to 
live and it's kind of like this conversation of longevity it's more vitality i want to i don't want my time on a deathbed to be long i would like it Mm -hmm. to kind of go quick and um or or not at all and so i i want to be healthy kind of till i till i die and which isn't necessarily maxing out your heart rate every ride Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not just, you know, physical health, but you know, mental health as well. Um, did you, did yeah. you feel like, um, once you started riding, you, you kind of needed it in your life, like for your own mental well being? Yeah. And it was like the friend group that I developed from cycling was so different than mm-hmm. my entertainment friend group that was actors and musicians down in LA and, mm-hmm. um, and it was it felt more like nostalgic for me of like growing up with friends and just um i realize how i don't know i i'm i'm me i can hold a conversation in any setting i can um yeah go to a bar and hang out with friends and talk but i find myself I don't know. I think I'm better at it if I'm doing something. So it's like that social activity aspect of it was really important to me. And so I could go have deep, meaningful conversations on a six hour ride with friends mm-hmm. um, that I was missing, I think, in a lot of those kind of bar conversations or. Whatever. Well, and it's just like so damn fun to be out you riding bikes with, with friends and it's also really refreshing to um be in that culture of, of i don't want to say it's just like a health culture but it's just you know people care about their bodies they yeah they want to explore they want to see new things it's just like a it's such a like a strong way to live you know and um yeah it's just like living you know it's it's cheesy but it's like yeah you're know, living to the fullest extent or whatever or seizing the day like you know, you're, you're really just, um, taking it all in. You're, you know, you're feeling cold, you're feeling hot, you're, you're experiencing like life. I think as anyone should, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, I saw some quote or, or heard someone talking about this, how, you know, you tell someone, yeah, I'm getting up at like five tomorrow for a ride. And they're like, you're crazy. And it's, it's like that is crazy but going out and like drinking a shit ton of alcohol till three in the morning or something is not crazy like like that's it's so wild to me that that is the norm and that's what's accepted Mm -hmm. and getting up like compromising maybe a little sleep to go have a really rad adventure Mm -hmm. um out in mountains and Mm -hmm. nature is considered like lunacy Mm -hmm. yeah um and it's always like i hate those early mornings but i feel like every time i actually am out there i'm like oh damn this is so worth it yeah why don't i do this but i can i can like it's rare for me to actually go out early i'm just uh i'm not really wired that way but um yeah but whenever i do it's i love it i love it yeah (laughs) the the time that actually happens between like you laying in bed being like i don't want to get up 
to the realization of this was worth it. I should do this more. Mm -hmm. The actual time is probably an hour or two, a couple hours maybe, but it feels like two completely different lifetimes Mm -hmm. when you're like laying in bed. (laughs) Completely. Um, So I've always found when I'm really active, biking a lot, you know, I don't even bike a lot anymore, but um, I try to. Uh, but like, yeah, if I'm really like heavy into it, I don't know, 15 hours a week, um, 16 hours a week, I find that my creativity kind of declines. And then I've found that Mm -hmm. like when I, uh, get injured or take some time off, suddenly my creativity kind of just ramps up like really fast. So I'm just curious, like for you, if you noticed, um, throughout your time as a, a cyclist, if you've how your creativity kind of kind of ebbs and flows with you know how much you ride and does it help you does it is it helped your songwriting to to be out there in your in your thoughts like you mm. you know i don't know how has it affected i guess your your creativity i think i think it's positive for mine in the sense of uh because you know in theory my job title is be creative or it's like write something creative um because that's like what's happening at all times it allows me to or it forces me to take a break from it and i think that is one of the best things you can do within uh, the realm of creativity and uh and two it's that you know that moving meditation uh idea where there's like something like some code I can't crack within a song or something. And then it feels cliche to say that too, but you know, somewhere along your ride, you're like, Oh, like what if I just did that? And mm-hmm. it all kind of changes and makes sense. So there's that, but I, I think it is just, a, I mean, I don't even perfectly know all the science of it, but I, I know, you know, there's, it obviously releases all those endorphins and, what have you to hopefully be firing uh, parts of your brain that might not not otherwise be in operation mm-hmm. if you're just sitting there trying to write a song. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I finally, uh, well, not finally, but I bought this uh, the the Creative Act by Rick, Rick oh, Rubin yes. right here. Got it right here. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, it's so good. There's one little uh, quick quote here that says, uh, "Sometimes disengaging is the best way to engage." And that's his chapter on distraction being good for creativity. Yeah. And I definitely think like balance is, is key for creativity. Like, yeah. And spending that time kind of ruminating out there, kind of processing kind of like you said, like, yeah, I don't, I don't personally meditate. Um, I don't take the time to kind of, kind of clear my thoughts and do that. But when Mm. I am riding, um, especially if I'm like mountain biking and really in the zone, you know, I am meditating basically. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not thinking about things, but I am, I'm kind of pushing them out. Um, right. and I have, I have these like rules for when I'm really trying to ride fast on the mountain bike. I basically say if my mind starts to, to wander and I start to think about something that's stressing me out or, or whatever, I need to hit the brakes and just, just go a little slower. Don't go, you know, yeah. full speed. 
Um, yeah. Cause I find that that's when I get into trouble is when yeah. I'm going through stuff in my head while trying to descend single track as, as fast as I can. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I found that when I really do want to ride fast, I can actively push the thoughts out. Like they come mm-hmm. in and I'm like, Oh wait, I, this thoughts coming in. I can't, I can't do this right now. I got to like focus on the trail. Yeah. I can kind of push it out and get back into the trail. And yeah. And I don't know. I, I feel like when I've finished, I feel like pretty rejuvenated. Um, I feel yeah. like I, I would imagine how people feel when they meditate. Um, yeah. And so, and I don't know. For me, I just feel like I can do that while I ride and get that you know benefit of meditation while also you know feeling good and getting exercise. Yeah. And um, yeah, I don't know if you experience anything like that, but. Um, that's my perspective. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a pretty like depressed season of life after a breakup, and mm-hmm. I found that the bike was I couldn't go there almost because it. I think that like I wasn't riding technical train, which mm-hmm. probably should have been because that would have that does force focus and. Mm-hmm. Actually, when I'm sad, I actually really love climbing because it, like, you're on a wall. You have to be paying attention to like where your hands going, like how it's going on to that hold, and mm-hmm. um, it requires a lot more, like, just focused thought mm-hmm. uh, or presence. I guess is the term maybe, but um, cycling, especially up here where it's there's so many just wheat fields and like not changing landscapes that it's just so easy to get stuck in your thoughts and mm-hmm. um as opposed to, eh, there's a lot of trails though i suppose mm-hmm. if i would have been riding trails or something that would have mm-hmm. been better i mean yeah for sure like when i ride i do think a lot about stuff like even when mm-hmm. i mountain bike or even when i'm on the road bike or gravel or whatever like my mind is often racing i'm working through problems or i'm trying to come up with a plan for this or that or explore kind of different ideas um Mm -hmm. and that i would say is like 99 percent of my writing and um the -hmm. whole meditative pushing thoughts out is the 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 rare occasion when i'm just completely sending it downhill on the mountain bike (laughs) it's a great skill to acquire Yeah. yeah um but uh so we uh you and i we met um by doing a fat was it the fat bike ride that we did the snow the snow I think ride so yeah or maybe I like you hiked that. up to empire pass in park city or so, yeah. e- either one um yeah but um either way yeah <laughs> i realize uh, i feel kind of bad because i took you on um it wasn't like super gnarly but we were you were biking on the snow and ice um yeah and that was pretty shortly after your big crash in um 2020 um yeah and you yeah. probably were still a little timid <laughs> yeah but it's good to get get back out there and i i don't know i've always had that mindset of the longer you wait the worse it's gonna be and mm-hmm. before you can start to send it and mm-hmm. i think that uh, something i've learned with like breaking bones is once it's healed it's stronger than it was before and it's once it might hurt a little but 
it gives me confidence that it's gonna hold up at least and mm-hmm. and it's snow so it, it was yeah you know it's a lot lower speeds than gravel or mm-hmm. road yeah but. i think our average uh speed was like six miles an hour so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty slow. yours might have been seven i was probably yeah. five so yeah. maybe our our average speed yeah. six yeah so uh, um that crash in, in 2020 um looked like you were yeah. out for a typical ride going around a corner yeah. slipped on some gravel um, yeah and hit the ground hard <laughs> yeah and it was like i remember so distinctly it was like a time of decently high mileage and i mean it was covid times kind of so everyone had some pretty high mileage going on and i was tired and it was one of those where you sit there in your bike kit for like 30 minutes before you actually get on the bike and you're just like i don't really want to do this and i'm just tired and so i don't know if i just had like such a lazy attitude towards it all that day or something but i they all, I will say something else working against me on the day was they had just freshly like laid new gravel and then oiled it. Mm-hmm. And so it was like the little gravel pieces were like marbles kind of on top of mm-hmm. it felt like I went because I went back to it like the next day I had like somebody drive me there and I was like, what happened? Like I've taken this corner so many times. It's on camber. It's like it's it's a fast one and it comes up quick but like i've never like screwed it up so bad <laughs> and so yeah i went back and that was kind of the only thought i had is like and i got out of the car and it was like slippery to like walk on and hmm. i was like huh but well sometimes when they lay new chip seal um especially around a corner like the the machine that's like distributing the gravel around can sometimes leave excess gravel in some spots Oh yeah, as it like goes around the corner. Um, yeah. So you, I mean, there was probably just some excess gravel in that like one spot and yeah. Um, I, it was like a slid out a little and then corrected it. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that this is, I'm not the only person that's done this, but slid out a little, corrected it. And like had the thought of like, oh shit, that was close. Mm-hmm. And then I guess got turned sideways on or something. I don't know, overcorrected it or something. And then found myself just flying over the handlebars. Mm-hmm. Uh, bike attached to feet and just kind of that, like that first impact with like my head and I cracked my helmet through and stuff. And I was like sliding along this, <laughs> like... I wasn't flying, but I was going over 20 miles. You, like you, 20 something. you were doing 20 something. I, I, I analyzed your yeah. crash very closely oh, on Strava. Yeah. Uh, nice. And um, I think what might have happened is, is you know, it was a right hand corner and yeah. you crashed on your left side. So I think you, you, your rear tire must have hit the gravel, your front one did, and slid out and then regained traction. Yeah. And when it regained it traction, hot. it yeah. may have thrown you off to your left side and yeah. right straight down onto your shoulder and head and hip. Yeah. Um, and I remember sliding. Like, and I remember like I slid for a while and in motion, you're like, Oh, this, this is going to be a bad one. I think mm-hmm. <laughs> like you have the time and to be aware of like, 
this isn't a good situation. It's like in the movies when they like go to slow motion and you get to hear like the person's thoughts. It's like, <laughs> yeah. like you might be wondering how I got here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah. <laughs> man. Um, and so in terms of injuries, um, broken scapula, is that right? Yeah. C- yeah. Concussion. Uh, concussion, which never actually got diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had concussions before and I was like, this is a concussion, mm-hmm. which is crazy to me. Um, like I was, it was, I mean, bad time to go to the ER. I tried to avoid it. So I went to urgent care and the doctor that was there came in and he was like, I can tell your shoulders out of place. And, and his, I think it was a misdiagnosis, but he was like, you have a dislocated shoulder. I need to pop it back in. And we don't have like any pain meds here for you to like to do that. And he's like, you should go uphill to ER. And so I did. Um, everyone's got COVID in the mm-hmm. waiting room and I'm sitting there with like just torn up bike kit and everything like bleeding out and <laughs> um, and I was in there for like three hours and I remember just being so hungry because it was a fasted ride oh my god yeah <laughs> so it's like late now and getting getting in the afternoon just like still no pain meds or anything and um finally they got me in and, and put some stuff in and um yeah they're they're like what hurts and I was like my shoulder and like my whole leg everything was kind of bloody and they're like starting to clean out the wound they're like does this hurt and I was like don't even feel it and they're like oh you have what we call blinding pain where like the one thing hurts so bad that you don't notice anything else on your body and so I don't know for whatever reason though they still never even looked at like my head and mm-hmm. I even I had I was like holding the helmet that's cracked like in the room and I was like huh did you have um like lingering uh concussion symptoms um for like days or weeks or months uh, after that uh that one definitely was not the worst mm-hmm. I've had um so I'm, I'm grateful for that so mm-hmm. I, I didn't really notice it but man I've had friends that it goes on for years and mm-hmm. it's it's no joke um so i feel lucky i mean no symptoms that i recall but yeah i don't know maybe, maybe ask my friends <laughs> i'll tell you they're like I, yeah he's a little different yeah, now <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um, crash brett is not the same yeah head injuries are they they just suck um yeah. i i hit my head hard in 2015 and um to this day i have symptoms like daily really? yeah it's um it's just kind of like more of like a tired feeling um yeah especially like late in the day um and like if i'm fatigued like certain situations can seem more difficult or but i just i'm to the point where it's it's been nine years so i just try to push through it and yeah learn like you just kind of develop boundaries and um figure out how to live with it basically um yeah but maybe it'll be better next year <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah there um, you go but uh let's see so you somehow picked up like this uh, map clothing uh, ambassadorship um 
Yeah. But re- that also recently ended. But like, it, it yeah. seems like you've, you've just become a real like cyclist. Like people, there's probably a lot of people who know you as a cyclist uh, and less of even as a musician. Um, totally. Yeah. My, my quick example of that is like, I have this group that I ride with up here oftentimes we have like a Thursday night worlds mm-hmm. kind of situation. And, um, and one of the guys, like, I don't know, it was like a whole year of riding together. And then he was like, wait, you're in friendship. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, that literally has been like my top played song on Spotify the last, like however many years. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, sweet. But, which I, I actually love that sentiment um, of like, you don't necessarily bring your job on the bike no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nice. I feel like I've um, I've learned some things about people while riding where I'm just like, oh, damn, I didn't realize you were the you know CEO of this company. I mean, especially yeah. like in Park City, like you're just yeah. suddenly you're riding with some ex-Olympian or, or you know, yeah. something like that. Totally. Um, so you, you ride a lot. You, you seem to care about like the training aspect and you're, you're thinking about zones and you have a power meter, I assume. Yeah. Which is, I just, that's <clears throat> on the new Evo, which I got mm-hmm. last summer. So that was my first time riding to power like mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. other than Zwift. And, um, I, I do like it. Mm-hmm. I, I, as much as I want to be a purist and, you know, well, it's nice. It it's, it's nice to look at after as well, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and I think like any way that you can track improvement over time can make it all worth it in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it really is type two fun, where like you are suffering, um, you know, yeah. not like horribly, but you know, sports suffering. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, it it's nice to have any metric that you 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 have access to 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 track your improvement over time. Yeah, um, I think that's what's so awesome about cycling is like almost no matter how old you are, you can improve. Um, especially yeah. if you're maybe new to it, or um, if you've kind of fallen out of it for a while, like. Yeah, you could mm-hmm. be 60 and get into cycling and improve until you're like 75, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or We were just talking about that because endurance requires such a long time to like establish and mm-hmm. to grow that mm-hmm. capacity mm-hmm. versus like an anaerobic thing that's here this week and gone next. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as we get older, that's like the first thing to go. And it's... as listening to Killian Jornet talk about it, um, that those like aerobic capacities, they just take so long to develop uh, that, you know, someone in their 50s can put down like an incredible race at like a Grand Fondo or I don't know, any of these local races and things um, where they don't have to sprint mm-hmm. uh, because mm-hmm. they can just like hold the high number mm-hmm. for that long it's amazing how fast some I, there's people who have, i mean i'm pretty sure i've been beaten by like 60 year olds at random races uh yeah i've definitely been beaten by ned overend uh he yeah. he's like a famous mountain biker from back in oh, the day yeah. but yeah. i think he beat me at the um 20 2017 crusher in the tusher or may 2018 
Oh, nice. Um, yeah. And it's just like, man, it, he's like literally 60, <laughs> I, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So do you yeah, have any um, like goals within cycling at this point, like events or have you done any events? Um, yeah. Um, I haven't done a ton. It's interesting. Like in LA, like racing isn't a thing unless you're like Legion or, you know, mm-hmm. do, there's like a couple teams in LA that mm-hmm. really care about racing. Other than that, it's like mostly just kind of people out having fun and trying to ride fast mm-hmm. for the hell of it. Uh, and then coming up here, everyone races because that's like what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've gotten more into it up here. Uh, there's like, you know, we have like a summer driveway series that's like on a raceway, mm-hmm. um, like course or whatever. And, that, and is that uh, like a road biking? Yeah. Like crit okay. style okay. kind of, it's like a two mile lap, mm-hmm. but, um, and then I did, it's like, I don't, I don't care enough really to go get like all go through the system and get like the cat. No. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, all that yeah. stuff. So I kind of just like showing up and mm-hmm. racing my friends mm-hmm. and, um, so I'm doing, I did, a. <clears throat> it was, it's Ted King's race that he's not doing it anymore, but the rooted Vermont, mm-hmm. um, that was one of the coolest races or I guess, I don't know if it's considered a race or a Fondo, but it, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that one was so fun. Just like cool. Like Vermont gravel is incredible. It's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> My brother lives uh, in uh, Woodstock, Vermont. And, um, okay. I've been lucky enough to ride some of the gravel roads out there and Vermont yeah. gravel. I feel like, is the best in the country. I mean, it's, that's, yeah. it's a pretty strong statement, but there's so much of it. It's yeah. so well maintained and like smooth Yeah. and, um, such interesting hilly terrain. It's just yeah. it's so cool. Yeah. I, I <clears> love <throat> it there. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually I did, I guess I don't, cause tour of Utah is not happening anymore. Is mm-hmm. it? I did there grand fondo that was like the first bike race i did or oh wow i guess mm-hmm. whatever the mm-hmm. ultimate challenge oh yeah yeah that's claims, right yep claims to be like the toughest grand fondo or something in the country which i don't know if i'd call it that but mm-hmm. it, was, it was hard it was a long day so like you know you've you've kind of evolved, you've evolved as a, a person you've you know, your music career has, has has grown and you're still active and you've developed this this habit of biking too much you know like is there any perspective you have now looking back it just i don't know just some of like even like the harder times like whether it was your bike accident or when those seven years where you didn't really have a lot happening with your music career mm-hmm. or even walking away from soccer which couldn't have been that easy i mean mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to to leave something that you're so passionate about but i guess do you have any like perspective looking back especially during like the tougher times and um how you got through it and and maybe what advice you would give to your you know younger self back then yeah it's it's interesting like i i think those at least in hindsight maybe maybe it's just my jaded perspective but in hindsight those difficult times seem to move quicker in the younger years Mm -hmm. um 
And then now in the older years, when time itself moves quicker, it feels like those hard times tend to linger. Um, and I don't know if it's because it, you start to get a sense of um, the finite nature of life and that it's, it is going to end and that we don't have all that many years um, in the grand scheme of things. And so when something dramatic happens that can alter your life, you know, as we're older, you're like, Oh shit, this is, this is my new life. And mm -hmm. um, I'm reading this book. Um, it's called the still life. And I have it over there. I actually don't even know the author. I found it at a running store. <laughs> yeah. and it made sense to me. And um, it's kind of this idea of, back to like meditation and the idea of meditation within movement and really I would say more so I mean I think meditation is like the act of mindfulness it's like this idea of being aware and um, present and mm -hmm. that is probably the healthiest uh, kind of thing that I've discovered in going through difficult or painful times and um in the book it says that the average length of an emotion or a feeling is 90 seconds and anything beyond that is essentially ruminating on it or dwelling on it hmm. or revisiting that emotion and that was fascinating to me um and it, it kind of like maybe puts into perspective the the self-sabotage that takes place in those difficult times or those moments when you just continue to like try and process something you continue to try and make sense of something that doesn't make sense and um when in reality that thing is probably over you're just trying to you're i don't know you're living with pain of that thing and um but if you're truly present, I, there's this other song. It's like a an electronic song, but it starts out, and I, I don't know who's saying this quote or what. I need to look it up. But it's like a speech, and it's it sounds like a professor or some kind of psychologist talking, and he's like, you know, the only thing that is real is the present. Like even your memories are only happening in the present. Like you're, you're not actually visiting those events. You're visiting the memories of those events. And so it's only in the present and anything in the future like has not happened yet. And so this moment of now and, you know, probably won't ever hear a, a good financial advisor talk in this kind of way, but, uh, the, <laughs> just that thought of, I have right now, um, that's the only thing guaranteed to me. Um, I think there's something really peaceful in that, or, or at least hopeful, maybe, of that bad thing. Like, I don't know. Again, this thing that kind of the heaviest time of my life feels like was this breakup that I had, and um. I received word of our relationship ending via email and so <laughs> I 
<laughs> which we can have a separate podcast for that topic alone. <laughs> but after like seven and a half years, and I was like, it's like I read the email once, but the pain that that email caused like went on for you know a year probably mm-hmm. after that. And had I been, I don't know if you know I had the skills to be completely able to allow that email in that moment to be that moment and be like okay like we're no longer together i'm gonna move on what you're saying sounds so like true you know like yeah mm-hmm. it's true like, to, like today is 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 today and um even if the past is you know haunting you um yeah but it's so hard to let go of those things that are were painful you know yeah um you know i've got my own you know bs that's happened that just continues to haunt and um Hmm. and it can ruin your day like you could have a perfect day you know and here it comes here it comes to wakes up you know this like evil character that just um wants to ruin your day and it's so hard to to move on and, and not think about it um yeah but i do like what you said about just like you know it's not real it's it's in the past it's just a memory yeah um yeah and um i'll find this song and send it to you it's mm-hmm. it's one that's like every time it comes on it like catches me off guard because it's spoken so perfectly about how the only thing real is the present moment mm-hmm. um and and here you are like um, were you in uh, la or spokane when um you got that email uh I was, yeah in like north idaho like Coeur d'Alene, okay. up on the the lake and, and so here you're um, in like a beautiful place you know yeah. i've heard of Coeur d'Alene. i've never been there but i know it's beautiful you probably yeah. had your bike yeah. life was probably pretty great yeah and yet this thing happened that probably brought you way down for a long time yeah um, yeah it was it is wild i mean the impact it had on me physically and obviously emotionally um like I lost 30 pounds in a month and Damn. it was, you know, it's not just an email, but mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. a lot of really shitty moments throughout that mm-hmm. experience that caused that. But I don't know if you, it's sometimes nice to oversimplify those experiences, mm-hmm. um, looking back on them to just give them kind of, I don't know, to let them be just a moment and mm-hmm. not have mm-hmm. as much significance as they try to demand of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you kind of hinted at it earlier, but are you, do you, do you not drink alcohol anymore or? No, I, yeah, I've, I've given that up, wow. um, which is, I don't know, like I, I um, are you familiar with Peter Atia? No. He's like in the Huberman space, kind of mm-hmm. just life longevity, like really brilliant. Like love actually listening to him. He's got a podcast and he just came out with a book. And um, I really like his perspective on alcohol where he's like, it's undeniably bad for you, mm-hmm. but it can be fun. And what's the point of living forever if you're not having fun and enjoying it? Mm-hmm. Um, so his is kind of preaches on moderation and, um, I would say I would describe to that, but I mean, I had alcohol like one time last year and it was like one drink. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's, 
not yeah and it, it's not i wouldn't say i have any kind of problem or anything i'm lucky that that's not part of my life and um it's just actually i was listening we were on tour and tour is just like i don't know the the <laughs> it's just the worst it's so unhealthy for you i think as it you know classically is um and so you're you know you're compromising sleep you're adding a lot more alcohol than you probably would normally take in you might be adding some other drugs and then you're adding this like egotistical like i get on stage and you know, perform and I'm on top, like I'm higher. There's like this physical, um, delineation or, or pedestal or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Pedestal between you and the mortals out, mm. you know, in front of you. And so it's this like, yeah, it just plays with your head a little bit of like, Oh, I'm really great. And I'm amazing. And which is not like, I, I know that that's a delusion. And so I, I don't actually like having that sensation mm-hmm. um, for me and, and at our shows, I really love this idea of like kind of oneness and not to get too like hippie, but it's that to me is like the coolest shit when the room feels like we're all taking the same air in and like, we're all like, you know, we might have different beliefs. We might have whatever, but like it's a moment of a shared experience with, people that hopefully don't look all the same as me and mm-hmm. um yeah that that stuff is really cool and i just feel honored to be a part of it but i think if it starts to feel like egotistical it's i don't know not a good feeling but mm-hmm. i digress uh, it's okay <laughs> yeah drinking. yeah i mean I, th- I feel like it must be like i still drink pretty regularly because i just enjoy Mm. beer and wine um yeah but uh it must be tough like i mean unless you're the people who you surround yourself with um are also not drinking as much unless maybe that's not tough at all i mean when did you stop drinking by the way oh yeah so it was on tour and i listened to a huberman podcast on drinking which a lot of friends were sending me i don't know (laughs) Which might have been. <laughs> They're like, you need to listen yeah, to this, Brett. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I listened to it and I was like, man, it just makes a lot of sense and how it affects your sleep. And mm-hmm. it was kind of me being curious of, well, I wonder what it would. I didn't drink till I was like 24, anyways. Mm-hmm. Like I had an odd childhood, I think, compared to most. But, mm-hmm. um, and so it wasn't, it's not this thing that, I have some like strong attachment to, I really like quality alcohol. Like I still have so much of it here of like, from when I was drinking, I have some like really wonderful mezcal and, um, I don't know, it's kind of cliche, but Japanese whiskeys, some scotch and, mm-hmm. um, stuff I really do enjoy if I'm drinking. Um, but I just, it's in the basement. I haven't drank it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always tell my friends like, come over, drink my, nice stuff so since you stopped drinking i mean have you noticed any difference in like i don't know how you feel your creativity your your um your sleep things like that definitely i feel like my sleep is great 
Um, mm-hmm. I I sleep. I looked back at like I have. I wear Coros watch and mm-hmm. it tracks everything at night. And which I think you can kind of say that for any watch you wear these days. But um, yeah, I was uh, looking back and I think I averaged. And it's not great about getting like perfect like you were actually sleeping here because I've looked and I was like, oh, I was actually awake and doing like breathing exercises in the morning and it thought I was sleeping. Um, but for the most part, whatever, it's kind of mostly accurate. And I think my average sleep in the last year was like nine, nine plus hours. It was something that I was like, man, I, I probably don't need to sleep quite as much <laughs> as I'm doing. Well, I think uh, the amount that you ride and, you know, yeah. the, the other things you're doing throughout the day, I mean, nine hours sounds pretty spot on to me. Um, that, yeah, that's probably, probably right. I haven't considered I, that. I just, I just feel like as an athlete, even eight isn't quite enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's just like, I know when I was riding more, um, eight felt like the absolute bare minimum. Like I felt, a, mm-hmm. I felt like when I woke up after eight hours, I felt usually not great. Um, yeah. I just, I don't know. I think the body just needs a lot of time to process and digest and um, yeah, repair all the damage. Night. Yeah. It was only six hours last night, so. Oh, brutal. Yeah. my I'm, yeah. I'm not going to tell you what I slept last night. It was, it was bad. So we're, we're both on the yeah. same train today. <laughs> yeah. And so, um. You've got a, a somewhat of a mountain tour uh, coming up. Um, yeah. It, like in two weeks, right? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I had that realization last night. I was like, oh. Yeah. I got to work on some songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, it looks like your first stop is Missoula, then Jackson um, or Teton Village and Jackson Hole, uh, yeah. Boise, uh, Frisco, Colorado. And then ending in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. Did you guys like uh, curate th- these towns in particular for this tour? Yeah. Um, like classically, we've our old agent. Um, yeah, is Billy Eilish's agent, just very much a pop agent, and so they kind of would just run us through the pop system, and it was it's this weird thing to have like a quote hit song in the pop space but like I don't really listen to pop music at all mm-hmm. and um, that's not what I try to create necessarily I mean don't get me wrong the, the paycheck is pretty good for a, when you can exist in that space but um, yeah it's kind of weird because then people are working for you in that space and that's not where you feel like you belong and um so long story short we have an agent now who's much more interested and willing to try things with us and be like oh i think we might have some fans over here in this Mm -hmm. pocket or like there might be some people over here and even beyond that like you know there is a business uh, approach to it all but we also try and take that out of it a lot these days. And it's like, we really like the mountains. Let's mm-hmm. go to these mountain towns. Mm-hmm. We love to ski, snowboard. And so, yeah, on this trip, uh, are you bringing all, all your gear to? Absolutely. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. I mean, yeah. that's the dream. Like if you could yeah. combine doing what you love or, you know, 
um, I hope I hope you still love making music yeah. and performing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And combine that with um, stops in all these amazing places to, to snowboard or ski. Um, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> that's that's what I try to do. I mean, I don't know how much of it. Like, I am jealous of my friends who I think have built something and are really like prepared for their future and like you know are really financially secure and and I can get in my head a little bit about that that I'm not more like them um, but I also have a pretty great time in life and um, so much of it truly is just trying to curate moments that I love and um, and I think that is where you know, in, in working with Map or even Cannondale or, um, yeah, other brands that I kind of get to do things with in the outdoor space, it's truly just because I love it. And um, I think, it, you know, maybe not as much these days, but maybe a few years ago when I started having these conversations with them, um, it was kind of like, I, I can, I don't know if you want anything to do with me, but I can tell a story from a different angle than like being a pro athlete and mm -hmm. I can just tell it from someone who trains as much as a pro athlete mm -hmm. <laughs> but is not actually fast yeah just a, just a little slower than uh, yeah. <laughs> the pros um, well that's so awesome that you've been able to you know do what you love be in beautiful places I mean that's just yeah that's so ideal um, and I, I mean, I personally just love to visit anywhere in the West. Um, yeah. Lived in Boulder for a long time. I've actually never been to Missoula. I'd love to get up there at some oh. point. Um, yeah, same, with, same with Bozeman. <clears throat> oh. Bozeman's a gem. They're, I haven't, I don't know Missoula as well, even though it's only like three and a half hours away from Spokane. But, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, sweet. Um, I think that's it for today it's uh been awesome Sweet. to to cover your life and uh thanks for doing it yeah and hear about all your your uh your kind of evolution as uh all these as different things you've done yeah. as a human yeah yeah good luck Appreciate on the tour yeah. uh you. maybe i can get this episode out before your tour starts and uh spark Sweet. up some interest and in, um, yeah uh pack the rooms yeah cool all right well Thanks again, and uh, best of luck. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the 4A Podcast. If you'd like more info on Friendship and their upcoming tour, you can head over to www.wearefriendship.com. For questions or feedback, feel free to email me at robbie at 4ajournal.com. And that's Robbie with an I-E. In future episodes, we will hear from more athletes, cyclists, artists, food experts, and more. So please rate, like, and subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow the show on Instagram at 4A Journal. And that's it for this episode. Get outside and be well. <laughs>